the medical revolution we had in the 20th century is, I think, going to be happening in soil in the 21st century. You've been listening to Judy Fitzpatrick of Microbiometer. This is the second part of our interview, and it is episode 82 of the Get In My Garden podcast. I'm Aaron Moskowitz, and today we dive deep into microbiology and the workings of the microbial marketplace. We discuss the current state of research, the balance between competition and cooperation of soil microbes, and the environmental influences on microbes. Then we discuss what some of the cannabis growers are doing to foster microbial balance and why they love growing in soil. Judy shares how the stress response affects flavor and texture of plants, and finally, what's going on with carbon and the soil. Thanks for listening to the Get In My Garden podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen from, and if you want to support the show, please take a moment to leave a positive review on iTunes or elsewhere. It really helps with rankings. Follow on Instagram at Get In My Garden, and check back in spring for a new blog format on the website, getinmygarden.com, where you can also sign up for the newsletter blast. I would assume that if you put a microbe into a place where it hasn't been adapted to living, because these microbes are community, no microbe makes enough food and vitamins, etc., for itself. It doesn't have a big enough DNA. One makes a vitamin B. They make these things and they share them by themselves. And only when one is living and active is another able to become active. So if you would take a Petri dish like I have and put some soil on it, and you would see like over six months, continually new types of fungi colonies and bacterial colonies would be appearing. Wow. So just phasing through different life cycles? Yeah. This one needs vitamin B and it's not until a vitamin D producing bacteria comes up does it start to grow. Just like we're so reliant as a population on all the people we live with, it's exactly the same for the soil microbes. Mm -hmm. So while there's competition between them, you know, it's the same type of competition we have. We need to work with them. We need to cooperate with them. And yet there's still a level of competition. So it has to be balanced between competition and cooperation. I doubt that most of the microbes that people put down actually work. I wouldn't object to inoculating some of my soil with AMF. Mm -hmm. The literature reports that you can get a very good response, you can get a moderate response, you can get no response, you get a bad response, you can get a very bad response. So not all AMF are good for all plants. Mm -hmm. And some plants don't have any relationship at all, right? A few don't. Well, and I guess uh, I always was curious, and I think we talked about this for a moment when we first chatted, uh, you know, Putting, so I guess there are companies that are producing these and then people are adding them in, but even just taking a plant that's from a nursery on the East Coast and then planting it in Colorado, it's just totally a curious thing to wonder what would be happening within the microbiome. You know, how are they communicating? Is it like a war that's going on until it establishes an equilibrium? That's a really interesting question. I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not really 
I, I don't really, really know. I would assume that a lot of them actually adapt to your garden. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're not thriving the way they should because maybe they're not hosted by the microbiome that they would prefer. Mm-hmm. But but maybe they're influencing positively. The microbiome is very dependent on abiotic influences. That means it's significant, like what type of soil you have, the pH of the soil, the different levels of iron and aluminum, etc. in the soil. Those things are very integral to the soil. And to a large extent, they determine which microbes will thrive. Mm-hmm. So that's probably very difficult to change. Although, you know, a lot of the people who are growing uh, lettuces and things like that for high-end restaurants, they're growing in artificial soil. And mm-hmm. I've tested some of those soils. It's like 2,000 micrograms. They, they have incredible number of microbes in them. Wow. That's really oh, interesting. Yeah. And I'm assuming, too, since cannabis and the industry is so advanced, at least it seems advanced to me, some of their growth systems with Dutch buckets and... Uh, aquaponics, maybe, or whatever system they're using, those units that they have for each plant controlled environments, they're fairly successful with the AMF. Yeah, now a lot of them are sticking with reusing the soil. Mm -hmm. Not if it gets pathogenic or something like that, because they know that the plant that was there before that did so well has seeded that soil with the proper AMF Mm. and has the right microbial population yeah so that's really good so maybe this is a good time since you're talking about that to talk about why cannabis growers really like soil yeah i would love to hear about that so okay. the audience for sure so the plant immune system is mainly microbial so they did a study in it was published in nature of over 600 farms that were organic over a 20-year period. And they found that even counting organic pesticides, they used 97% less pesticides. That's a big savings. And people always report better flavor in organic foods and better texture to the plant. And one of the reasons is that there's like 20,000 different antioxidants and things that plants produce when they're exposed to microbes, even pathogenic microbes, because they can usually handle a pathogenic microbe. Mm -hmm. And this creates stress in the plant, and it makes all these antioxidants, flavones, etc. And this is what gives plants its taste and its smell. So the plant needs a little bit of stress in order to, you know, fully develop flavor and texture. And that's got to be true too for cannabis flowers. Absolutely. Maybe even much more true because there's so specific flavor profiles. Very. And, you know, when you go to some of the shows, some of the places will just have canisters 
and you can just test the smell as they grow the you know of the ones they picked up from different places and the, mm-hmm. the smell itself is so different jeff lowenfeld says that cannabis people don't like the term terroir which is the french talking about why wines taste differently mm-hmm. well there's been more study done on that over time because there's not been a, a lot of study allowed on marijuana at, or ca- cannabis at this time. And what they find is there are fungi that are in the soil that are found actually in the grape. Oh. And they're metabolites of these fungi and different bacteria. They travel within the plant, but they're endophytes, okay? Even if it's the same species or close to the same strain or something, because it's also influenced by the even small changes in the type of soil Mm -hmm. from one farm to another, you can have quite a different microbiome in terms of flavoring the grape. That's so interesting. And I could see why the cannabis crowd would not want to use that word because they're so focused on genetics and the nature of the plant. Basically, but they're saying, I have a genetic plant X and it's interacting with my soil, which is A through X mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of microbes and, you know, sand and clay and iron and aluminum and manganese and boron, etc. There's just so much. I could see why it would, it would just complicate the story of their strains. The variation is tremendous. And my brother-in-law used to sell corn seed to uh, New York farmers. And he said even from farm to farm, the same seed wouldn't perform in the same way. Mm -hmm. That there are slight differences and things like that. It's the interaction between the two, between the plant's genome and the microbiome and the soil and the climate. But it's interesting. I mean... Philosophically, I kind of like it because I say to myself, you know, people who've been through a little bit of trouble are more interesting than people who've never had anything happen to them. I love that. I so agree. Yeah. I mean, we know if we're raising children, we don't try to protect them from absolutely everything. That would make a person who's really not capable of living on their own. We want them to be exposed to some of these stresses and learn how to deal with them on their own. We just don't want it to be an overwhelming stress. Are they using that to communicate with the microbes, that stress response, to fix problems or to get what they need? It's a combination of both, but a lot of those things are antioxidants. So what happens whenever you're exposed to a pathogen or something like that, they're part of the immune response. Mm -hmm. So they're just made so that If you end up with influenza, we know that at that point, you're more susceptible to a bacterial infection. So one of the things your body is doing for you at that time is it increases antioxidants and all kinds of immune. So it doesn't increase just the response against influenza. It ups the whole level of alertness of your immune system. If we talk about the immune system of the plant, the the analogy between the plant immune system and ours is very close. Mm -hmm. The difference is that our immune system makes very bacteria-looking cells in our bone Mm -hmm. marrow. If you look 
at one of our white cells going around eating up bacteria in your blood. And you can see those videos on YouTube. It looks just like an amoeba in the soil. I mean, they're so similar. So what we have is the getting inoculated with gut bacteria when you're born and bacteria that are around you things mm-hmm. th- that goes into your body and it primed your immune system. So if we take animals and we grow them in a germ-free environment, they do not develop an immune system. So then if we expose them, they would die. So how does this actually work? I mean, we can say it. What it actually does is the plant, every cell in the plant has a cell membrane. Mm -hmm. And the cell membrane isn't smooth like the outside of a ball. It's really, really, really bumpy. There's a lot of surface area there. And the cell membrane is lipid and protein, and it's about 50% proteins. And everything that goes into the cell It has to be recognized, except water and air, has to be recognized by a protein on the cell so it can get in. Talk about a gated community. So when the plant is exposed to healthy microbes in the soil, all the cells in the plant are stimulated to make a protein receptor that's called a microbial-associated molecular pattern receptor. Wow. Okay. So it says, I can recognize this thing as a microbe. Now, the way I explain it is there are certain things in the proteins of microbes that are unique to proteins. And the receptors can recognize those in the same way that you and I can tell that that's a dog, but you may not know whether it's a beagle or not. But you can definitely say that's a dog and that's a cat. So what happens is the cell then puts a lot more of those on the surface. So it becomes much more alert to the microbial population. And the microbial population of the soil is not just in the soil. It's on the leaves of the plant. It's on the surface air of the plant leaves, and it's circulating in the plant sap. So there are microbes everywhere in the plant. And then those microbe source is the soil. Mm-hmm. Most of them are soil microbes. So you're saying that the microbes that are on, within the plant and on the leaves, they're categorized still as soil microbes or just that the vast majority of them exist in the soil? best majority of them exist in this soil. So they're part of the, the soil climate in that area. Now, when the plant is exposed to a pathogen, it develops a much more specific receptor called a PAMP. That's a pathogen associated molecular pattern receptor. And the pathogen receptor has a lot of functions, but it, you know, one of the functions is actually if it's activated, the cell can actually get killed. So it's similar to like just in the memory of your immune system, where so it knows yes. that that's something it needs to go and kill right away. And it stimulates promotion of receptors on the surface of the cell, and it always goes through the cell membrane and it dangles a tail 
into the cytoplasm of the cell. And when it's bound, the tail changes shape and interacts with a carrier message. Amazing. And the carrier protein goes down to the DNA and turns on protein synthesis, appropriate protein synthesis. Kind of like how the mail goes into a corporation. There's so many great metaphors with soil. We've gotten this to a very scientific level. Um, Where are we headed with our research? Is there so much more to learn still? I think we're just on the cusp of soil becoming the, the medical revolution we had in the 20th century is, I think, going to be happening in soil in the 21st century. That's so awesome. I love to hear that. I think we have first, we really need to do it because we're facing disaster if we don't. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had James White speak with us and he speaks about rhizophagy. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it comes from rhizo meaning root and phagy meaning eat. Somebody in Australia had noticed that microbes were entering a root, the tip of the root, and they entered the tip of the root. And this has been carried forward a lot by James White at Rutgers University. And he has gorgeous pictures and everything up on ResearchGate. And you can see that the microbes come into the tip of the root and the plant extracts and gets 30% of its nitrate from this particular ingestion or eating of the microbes. And it doesn't kill all these microbes, okay? The microbes, after they've been relieved of their extra weight, so to speak, they stimulate the formation of root hairs, and most of them will be extruded back into the soil. There's so much going on right now. Going against the status quo has been difficult. Well, it's definitely a movement, and I think that we've surpassed the real the part where it takes so much effort because it's so new because there are just so many people right now who are talking about soil i think we're at the next phase where it's going to become widely accepted a lot of the research that people are doing there's a lot of movement in this space right now and a lot of interest interestingly the united states is behind a lot of the countries the united states is blessed with some of the best soil in the world Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we are something like 30 or 40 percent of the arable land in the world. One of the things is it hasn't been used as much for as many years as most of the world. You You're know, saying like 10,000 years of human agriculture versus 300. Yeah, 200, someplace only 100. Mm-hmm. You know, so their soils require so much extra mineral fertilizer, they can't afford it. I was going to say, I, I, th- I thought you might say, firstly, that it comes down to price. It sounds like it does. It comes down to price because the soil is so depleted. The, the soil is so depleted. So what happens is the more you feed the soil the minerals, the more minerals it needs. So use of fertilizers, even in the United States, is continuing to rise. Mm-hmm. You know, and farmers are really afraid to cut yields. They live on such, you know, narrow profit levels right now. It's really outrageous. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So what we see is a lot of countries that are actually being forced right now to say, 
how can I cut down on my pesticides? Are you talking about the governments themselves are coming to that realization and they're making changes in their legislation? Yes, the government is. Uh, in fact, India now requires soil health testing before they will loan anybody money to start. You know, at the beginning of the year, a lot of farmers need to borrow for seed, etc. And India wants to know your soil health before they'll do it. That's so cool. That sounds yeah. smart. It is smart. And I think if I rented land to somebody, I'd want to know what they're doing with it. Now, one of the things people have, you know, really used microbiometer for is not every cover crop is going to be great for your soil. So we actually have posted and shown the carbon sink group in New York City uh, showed four different covers on soil raised in a pot. And uh one of them didn't raise microbial biomass above 100, which it was. And cl red clover raised it from under 100 to 600 micrograms per gram. Wow. And can you, just for people who aren't too familiar, can you explain like what, what a range would look like, what range you'd be looking for or what you might find? Well, I think 600 is very, is a, 600 micrograms is often what we see in urban gardens, Okay. Here in the here in the east. Now the east soil is very conducive to higher levels. Mm -hmm. You're not going to see that in a very sandy soil. You'll probably get to three or four hundred unless you really put a lot of mulch and stuff into it. But they went to it's called the Carbon Sponge in New York. We worked with them and with City University of New York did the study and it'll be published soon. And they went into what could they do to start sequestering carbon. In New York City, just to make people aware of how we can start saving carbon. And they took an empty lot and noticed that it had a microbial biomass of under 100. Maybe it had toxins there sometimes. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe it was bare. Maybe there was just junk on top of it so things weren't growing. And they filled, you know, buckets. So they did a potting experiment. And in one month, I know they did ryegrass and I know they did red clover and I'm not sure what else they did. And what they found was ryegrass didn't improve the health of this soil, but red clover did. Now, red clover is something that puts a lot of nitrogen in the soil because it has a lot of rhizobia. Mm -hmm. So probably the soil was nitrogen deficient. So probably, you know, giving nitrogen to these bacteria, these fungi and bacteria worked. We just had a group of uh, students in Wisconsin, graduate students, do a big study on compost. And what they found was that when the compost was mature, the fungal to bacterial ratio increased. So that seems like a really great benefit of understanding the ratios for people who are amending their yards with compost or any sort of mulch to understand where, where they are in the process. Yeah, the mature compost had far more fungi than the immature. Mm -hmm. Now, if, if you were going to see what's going on with compost, you know, when it's red hot, it's not the stuff you want to put on your garden. Right. <laughs> Well, so the carbon situation, that's like a really 
interesting subject. I've, it, I always come back to it. And obviously, it's one of the biggest issues with younger people. They completely buy into the fact that there is a big, big problem with carbon in the atmosphere. So they're looking for answers. Whether it's a problem that we will solve naturally by just using our human imaginations and creating businesses and new systems and you know solving it that way, or if it's something that we have to focus on, like it's a Manhattan project, that's kind of a question for me. I'm hopeful that the new generation will be looking at it like a Manhattan project because that's where, like you said, when we're stressed out, we get to use our human potential. Exactly. Well, there's obviously a crisis with carbon dioxide. You know, in the last 10,000 years, we've released half the carbon that was in the soil. And a large part of that is overuse of mineral fertilizers. There's a lot of research now showing that implementation of regenerative farming activities, we could become carbon neutral. The problem is getting the farmers to the point where there's not too much risk of them going broke doing this. The initial investment can be kind of high for some of them. Is that right? I don't think most of them have enough money to do an initial investment. And one of the things that I was thinking we should actually offer to farmers is I think it would be great to have a lab that farmers sent their soil to. And they said, this is the, I want to grow corn next year and I want to use a cover crop. And would you just do a one month experiment and tell me which cover crop is going to go with my corn? That's a really brilliant idea. And do it because I've heard people complain like, you know, they're not doing it. They're not doing it. And the answer is they're not skilled enough to do it. They haven't been trained how to do this, and they have a lot, an awful lot of work to do anyway. They don't really have the time or the setup to do it. A lot of people are out there with amendments or with seeds and everything, and none of those is going to work probably more than 10% of the time mm -hmm. because that seed hasn't been tried in all 48 states. It may not be adapted at all for a different state. You may not be able to handle, you know, low rainfall. It may not be able to pair with the AMF that are in the soil. Mm -hmm. The AMF that are in the soil, you know, we used to think there is an AMF that can fix this, right? What they've found now is that the AMF usually, the colonization is usually by more than one kind of AMF. And that can be synchronized. What do you mean by that exactly? Just making sure that you're not falling for the trap of putting in one amendment that, you know, one, one variety or something? I'm just saying, you know, you walk to the doctor and he has one pill he gives everybody. Mm -hmm. No matter what you say is wrong with you. <laughs> right. Right. You know, that's not going to be true. Even if you have high blood pressure, the doctor has to usually try four or five different kinds of blood pressure medicine to find the one that works for you. So, you know, you really need to try these in your soil before you do anything. I went to uh, went to University of Mississippi and they were working on two different crops, three different cover cropping systems and three different fertilizing systems. 
and they're doing that to split test. They did these all in different plots, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was, and looking at the microbial biomass and the yields and everything, it was really interesting. The corn went better with this fertilizer and with this cover crop. That is so awesome and interesting. It is interesting that, that you see what a farmer's really up against. I think most of them are just making a decision on what they want to grow, and that, that's really the extent of it. And then they just put it into fate's hands. Well, basically right now, one of the things we've had to overcome with our test is an agronomist or a farmer just sends his soil to the lab. The soil testing is paid by the fertilizer companies. And it comes back with a recommendation, how much nitrogen, how much phosphorus, how much potassium. And the problem is that the farmer is just following a recipe that's handed to him. He's not really familiar with soil testing. Thanks for listening to the Get In My Garden podcast. For more information on microbiometer and to see more of Judy's work, visit microbiometer.com. The next episode will be with Jordan Mara of Mind and Soil, sharing about the mental health benefits of gardening. If you want to support this show, please take a moment to leave a positive review on iTunes or elsewhere, and subscribe wherever you listen from to be notified of new shows. You can follow the podcast on Instagram also at Get In My Garden, and check back early spring for a new blog format on the website, getinmygarden.com, where you can also sign up for the newsletter blast. Until next time.